Okay, so I think we should probably get stuck into um, the main subject of this afternoon's session. Um, can I just talk about the title a bit? It's um, Relationship Capitalization. Um, so uh, I probably need to explain a little bit later what do we mean by relationship capitalization. But essentially what we want to do with you is to explore um, some, I think, quite innovative thinking about the way we start to look at our, particularly our key accounts, and we start to look at how we place value on those accounts as a predictor of future performance. Um, so uh, that's the general theme. The afternoon is split, broadly speaking, into two sessions. Um, the first session is going to be exploring relationship capital, and then the ization bit of relationship capital comes also in the first part of the session. So we have the ization bit is the how do you take the value of assets of a business, which are our customers, and how do you capitalize them on the balance sheet of an organization? Because obviously the asset value of our customer base is arguably perhaps one of the most important assets we have to manage. And as such, as key account managers, we need to treat those accounts like any other asset with a great deal of care and love and attention. And I just thought I would start by sharing with you um, this slide, and perhaps you could just have a look at some of the stats on the slide. And what I'd add about this slide in particular, I do share quite a bit of few things on uh, LinkedIn and gone to great efforts to make uh, wonderful videos and lots of uh, people involved in time and expense and done that over the, over the past year or two, especially during lockdown and, uh, you know, had reasonable success. But this one slide in particular was something I'd done as part of my research and I presented it as, as a, at a guest lecture I was doing and I just thought I'll just pop this on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, the, the term viral, it officially went viral. It was... <laughs> Lots of people from all over the world is copying people and etc. And even got uh, a notification from LinkedIn saying, "Congratulations, your <laughs> your post is officially viral." So very proud moment, and just shows you that you know content is king. Doesn't matter too much about anything else. So, <laughs> so I think we all know that relationships are important. Yeah, but it's quite useful to see some of the data that's behind. Uh, what's on this slide. So we're talking about a subject that's hugely important. Uh, probably for many of our businesses, 80% of our revenue is going to be coming from 20% of our customers. Is that something from your experience actually happens? Uh, and so it's in incredibly important how we start to look at the way we, we assess, we plan, assess and monitor the value of those, those core um, relationships. In your goodie bag, you have a copy of my book, <laughs> <laughs> Selling Transformed, uh, that, uh, that bestseller that you can see at Foils and, uh, and so on. Um, in chapter 13 of the book, I start talking about the future and the future of um, things to do with sales. And th this is taken from the book, and it starts to explain... Um, the reason why we're here in many ways. You know, so this is a definition 
of relationship capitalization. And I want to explore this, uh, this afternoon how perhaps we can do this. So it's the process to capitalize the value of client contracts and the network and organizations that represents employees, clients, partners, suppliers. It's explained as the value created and maintained by nurturing and managing good relationships. It's therefore a predictor of current and future value of key accounts and as such can be measured. So that's, that's how I'm kind of defining it. I'm very happy to be challenged on, on my definition at some point, but let's go with this for the, um, for the time being. There are three reasons why I think these topics are so important. Number one is, um, I'm going to say there's no science in the way um, in how relationships are measured. Well, there is a science, but I don't think it's applied necessarily in, in the right way. And certainly with the work we're doing now with IntraHive, um, it's completely opened up my mind to the art of the possible when it comes to looking at all those complex relationships we have with customers at, at, at different levels. Hi, Richie. Um, the other is this around deliberate intent to mislead. Um, I'm going to share with you some case studies about organizations at the point at which they get sold. Now, this is the point that client relationships tend to be valued in the balance sheet. And the way in which you attribute value to customers is uh, at worst fraudulent um, and at best perhaps not well articulated. And I'm just going to give you an example of, of one particular client as an example of that. And then the third reason why I think it's so relevant today is to do perhaps with what I call relational constraint. We've all been in a, a world in which we've not been able to meet people. We've not been able to interact face to face with people. And on the one hand, you could say that with Zoom and all those other teams, you know, the technology has enabled us to increase contactability with key accounts. Is, is there still the same quality of relationships that you build versus face-to-face -face and, and, and meeting people. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to this point um, a little bit later on. So I think this, this topic right now is terribly important. How many, how many strategic account relationships do we have right now who maybe because it's a more transactional type of relationship we've had with them over the last two years are potentially thinking about switching and moving you know, to someone else? So um, these are the reasons why I think this topic is, is, so, uh, is so important. So uh, we're going to share with you two case studies. The first is going to be shared by Ryan, and, um, and the second is going to be shared by me. So Ryan, if I could just talk you through. Yeah, thanks. So this is, obviously you can guess uh, who this is about, uh, Barclays Bank. So this is from my previous life. I mentioned uh, where I worked in the past. And... Uh, we had Barclays Bank was uh, really hailed as a, a great example of how to grow accounts. So started with five Java developers, deployed, and it grew to over £25 million in revenue annually over the course of about five or six years. So it was really going great guns, managed, managed very well. And we got that fateful message one day where, from the procurement saying, we're looking to do a vendor consolidation exercise. So at that time, there were five vendors... Uh, we were second uh, by revenue, and they wanted to, to uh, reduce it to three vendors. 
So after a bit of you know, navel-gazing and uh, deliberation, we actually thought this was positive for us because they would get rid of vendor number four and five, and that revenue would come be split between the, the top three vendors. So went through that process, the, the, the typical RFP type of thing, reverse auctions, all the different rates for different individuals in different parts of the world. Everything went really well. Everyone was feeling quite positive about it. And I'll always remember that the fateful day uh, in Canary Wharf when we got the email from uh, the procurement saying, uh, unfortunately, you haven't been selected as part of this vendor consolidation exercise. And, and it was literally a shock, an absolute shock. And the head of Europe at the time immediately picked the phone up to the CIO to say, you know, what's happened? We've got this email and, and we're really shocked. And he said, we're, we're shocked that you're shocked because this was actually a very easy decision to make. He said, I have 40-something uh, managing directors reporting to me and I asked them all a very simple question. Name your top three vendors. And he said, can you guess how many named you as number one? Zero. Can you guess how many named you as number two? Zero. And you can, can you guess how many named you as number three? Zero again, which was in the office, imagine when this call is happening, was a real mic drop moment and literally nobody knew what to say. It was just a shock. And that's when I came in to do some analysis to find out actually what happened. So first thing we did, we went to the, the projects we were working on and we, we were doing good work, effective work. The people we were working for were happy, but they weren't being asked to name their top three vendors. In some cases, it was their boss. And in some cases, it was their boss's boss that was actually being asked. So then when we looked at that uh, MD layer for the 40-odd people, we realized that more than 50% of them were quite new. They'd moved in in the last 18 months. And the CIO, in fact, was quite new. He'd been there for two years or so and building his own team. So we, we just missed that entire CXO level uh, of relationships and just focused on the people we were working with. And that, when we got to the bottom of it, that was really what happened. And, and there was no saviour there. These programmes actually wound down over the course of the next 12 months. And that account was lost after all that work, all that great goodwill that was built with the individuals. And it just goes to show that you need to keep a good handle on who are the executives, who's changing, who's, who's in, who are the, the senior decision maker roles and all of these types of things. So it was a real horror story, but a wake-up call. And that's actually what set me on the quest to, to, to start my doctorate. So it was to, to understand, well, we, want, we know, now we know who we want to build relationships with, but, but what actually is a good relationship? And, you know, that's, a, that's another story because it's a, more of a complicated uh, model. But, uh, yeah, so just something to really bear in mind and, and talk to the, the science of how relationships are measured. So point one do you actually have a relationship with the people who, who you need to have relationships with? So um, this particular case studies kind of shows the importance of what we call relational structure, that you have the right relationships with the right people. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to talk more about relationship structure um, a little bit more. The second exercise is a, a different story. So... Um, I think, I don't know, Richard, do you remember working with Howard Schultz and Associates before your time? Yeah. <laughs> Probably, but it's a name from the past. So uh, this is a story about um, 
a firm of professional auditors. And what they do is they, they work pre predominantly in the retail field. And Howard Schultz was a privately owned company. It was an international company. And they wanted to grow their market share in the UK. The head of the UK wanted to sell the UK franchise to the American owners. And so wanted to create as much value as quickly as possible. And the way that he wanted to do that was through the way they managed key account selling. So we were brought in um, to work with Howard Schultz on a strategy to win large accounts. Their main competitor was PRG. Uh, PRG had their biggest foothold in Sainsbury's. That was their biggest account. So what we did was that we developed, um, uh, using our winning value proposition workshop that many of you are familiar with, we actually came up with a six-month strategy to win that account. And it was, it was won. Yeah, they were absolutely thrilled to bits. You know, we were celebrating. And what Howard Schultz then did for Sainsbury's was incredible. They grew that account over a period of four years. The account manager was made a VP. He was kind of any exemplar of great key account management practice. Um, you know, he was cited. He was well revered. They had an account team sitting in the Sainsbury's headquarters of about 20 people. You know, they were really embedded inside the organization. And if you just looked at relationship structure, you would say, this is amazing. The kind of depth of interaction they've got with the client was unbelievable. And then similar scenario to the one that Ryan has shared, out of the blue, after four years, they suddenly, and this is, this is you know, they were having regular ops reviews with the account uh, every quarter, they were doing all the right things, but there was this, we decided to put up to tender the relationship that you currently have, you have to re-pitch. Um, up to that point, PRG had basically moved away from the UK market. It, it was an incredible story yeah, of, of, of selling success. But then what happened, we got this RFP, major alarm bells, similar to what uh, Ryan was kind of, except they weren't, they weren't um, comfortable with the RFP. <laughs> you were comfortable. They weren't. This was for them a red alert. The CEO then said, Phil, can you go in to Sainsbury's and interview um, a number of our stakeholders? And there were uh, 14 stakeholders at Sainsbury's that they're working with. And the first stakeholder that I interviewed was the head of finance for Sainsbury's. So he's on the, on the board of Sainsbury's. And, you know, it was like pricking a boil, to excuse that. that it was. He, he was almost red in the face <laughs> at his frustration of the account manager that was actually looking after the account. He was... <coughs> He was beside himself with the lack of um, what he called listening, uh, the lack of, uh, of uh, or the, the feeling that he was being manipulated. In, you know, they were being devious, how they were building all the relationships within that key account. And after that first visit, and there were 14, I phoned the CEO and said, you've got to, right now, take the account manager off the account.
just now, do it. Just stop. Yeah? And um, to the credit of the account manager, he, he was okay about it. Yeah? He was still very loyal to Howard Schultz. He was still okay about it. We then did 14 other interviews, and we got a very similar picture. Everyone I spoke to was emotional about the way in which the account team were engaging with them. Um, when the RFP decision was made, PRG then became the preferred <laughs> supplier, and they lost the account. So here you had, after four years, this person who was revered as the best key account manager, and they completely lost it. And it made a huge material difference to the position of um, Howard Schultz in, in the UK. But this dilemma um, shows that it's not just structure that's important. It's not just having, being able to say you've got relationships with the right people in the right team um, and frequent relationships. What this tells us is that it's how you make customers feel that's more important, uh, sorry, as important as the level of which you're actually engaging with customers. So when we start to look at how do you start to value a key account, there are two metrics. One is the metric that explores structure, and the other is the metric that explores feelings and, and values, which we'll come on to a little bit later on. So this is... Um, this was uh, giving some insights into, well, you know, is it possible as a predictor of future performance of a key account that if you've got the right structure in place and the right feelings between supplier and customer, you're going to be more successful? Now, at this stage, we had no idea we'd be running this event. We were just looking at scenarios. <laughs> yeah, we hadn't worked out how to do it. Now... The third area here, I just want to talk about relational constraint, because if you take what I've just talked about and you start to relate it back to today, the pandemic, and you've probably seen, have you, the corn ferry and other things that have been going viral about employees resigning from companies. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, just look out for it. It's really interesting. There seems to be a sense of tiredness, of people having worked so hard. They're emotionally detached from the organisations with whom they work, yeah? Because they've been working from bedrooms, from homes. It's been bloody difficult, yeah? And with this question of big resignation, it's just me thinking now, are customers feeling the same right now? Have we, in the last two years having embraced all the wonderful technology to get closer to customers, are we losing it a bit? Are we, are we, uh, are we losing that emotional attachment? And we, we know from Professor Julian Birkinshaw's work that there are two sources of competitive advantage that companies need to have to succeed. One is um, adhocracy, it's the uh, uh, ability to be agile. The other is democracy, 
which is looking at the emotional attachment to the brand. So this kind of plays into that democracy kind of um, area too. So I'm just going to stop for a moment and ask any of you if you've got any thoughts on what I've just shared. Any, any, any questions, any, uh, any, any feedback that you've got? Any challenges? Yes, please. So, so just on the... Could you explain who you are and who you're with? Yes. So, so guys, my name is uh, Hurram, uh, Hurram Ajaz, and I work with uh, HP and uh, top-down sales. Yeah. Um, just on the, on the previous example. Uh, uh, the previous one, meaning the Sainsbury's one or the, the Barclays? Oh, the Howchalks. Yeah. one. Um, I think when I contrast that with Ryan's example, right? Yeah. In that case, the account was growing over four years, right? And yeah. became a double-digit million-dollar account. In this one, if... I I I I cannot see the disconnect between the strength of the feeling that he got back from your interview oh, with the customer. Actually, it's a great question. Yeah, great question. The pedestal that the key account manager had yes. been placed on yeah. for, for for a number of yeah. years, right? Now, what made it so much more painful was the the um, the way that Howard Schultz generates um, audit revenues from the accounts it works on is a percentage of what they can recover from their client. Um, and they were putting £60 million on the bottom line of Sainsbury's through the bottom line, much more than the previous incumbent. So they were very similar to, to here, they, they, but they had very tangible financial evidence that the effect they were having on the company's bottom line was massive. In spite of that, they were prepared to change supplier. Yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question. But I think it's very, it's, it's quite similar. And I, I just think because there's two perspectives there. I think one is the, the, the perception of that salesperson internally was that he was making more and more revenue for the company. But that didn't mean that the client was happy. I suppose he was being celebrated for being a success, but didn't, as, as became evident, that, that the client on a personal level uh, across the board, they were unhappy with their the methods with which they were generating their revenue. I suppose that's another way to put it, isn't it? Okay. Uh, yes. Question about Schultz project. Um, right. Do you interview the key account manager? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> what was driving those behaviours? Why was he happy to step back? Um, have you heard of Jahari Window? Um, you know the blind spot and the arena and the open arena. I mean, I mean, I knew Howard really well. We. we he loves cricket. We go to Lords together to watch cricket, you know. Um, but he had a... He can come across as being incredibly arrogant. And he just had no idea the effect he was having on other people. It was a complete blind spot. So what was driving him? I mean, everything he did, and I genuinely believe this, was trying to drive value for the customer. Yeah, everything he did was to try and achieve that goal. He wasn't lazy, he wasn't complacent. The trouble was he really upset people and how he did it, you know, and he didn't realise it. And what I was truly astonished, because I'd worked with him and Sainsbury's during those four years, and, it, and on paper it looked incredibly successful, but it was, it was the, the intensity of the emotion that, that hadn't been followed and tracked for some reason, the client. What surprised me is 
if, they, if, if they were doing such a good job, why didn't they tell the account manager? I, I don't know if I ever got to the bottom of that. What I'm interested in is how the account manager saw the relationship. Did he think it was going well? Oh, yeah, he was shocked. Yeah, no, he was, it was like losing a big job, you know, because he was taken off that account. And they then question whether he should look after any other accounts. <laughs> yeah? Because they didn't want that to be replicated. Technically, he was brilliant. He, he was an ex-CEO of a company. You know, he was terribly knowledgeable. But it was just his manner. But he also had 20, 30 other people in the account. None of them knew about it. CEO, I'm interested in how you can uncover those sorts of behaviours, whether it's the key account manager when recognising something doing wrong, yeah. or whether it's one of his direct reports that yeah. has an external view of his behaviour yeah. as a customer. Absolutely. I can uncover that in, in uh, yeah. an environment where they're, they're going to be treated with respect. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, well, we'll talk a bit more about that later, but that, that's clearly it. So what surprised me is customers don't want to give bad news. You know, people are quite polite. They're held back. And you really have to create the right environment for them to express their feelings. Yeah. But we know how important... Yeah. Anyway, the case study speaks for itself, doesn't it? Okay. So um, is that okay just for starters? So what I'm just doing, doing now... Now, I, I want to talk about deliberate intent to mislead. And I think Richard might have something to say about this. <laughs> um, not HPE. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but you probably know the story, do you? Yeah, <laughs> this, this, I found this really fascinating. So Autonomy, uh, a Cambridge-based pure play software company, was bought by HP for 11 billion pounds, or dollars, actually, it might have been dollars. Um, I think it was Meg Whitman, who, Meg Whitman. Meg, Meg Whitman, who was behind that. Actually, and I, well, he was her predecessor, actually. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, was it the SAP head that was, was? Yeah, I can't remember his name. It doesn't matter. I don't say it loud. <laughs> Now, I was interested partly because Autonomy in the UK was one of the fastest growing software companies and, you know, it was, it was quite interesting to get recognised at a national level. The other is that HP used to be huge clients of ours and they still are, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but basically Autonomy sold to HP for 11 billion and at the end of the financial year, HP had an 8 billion impairment charge in the accounts. That's bad news, isn't it, Richard? <laughs> it's not great. Of which five billion was down to the autonomy purchase. And essentially what that related to was obviously when they started to unravel the detail of what was behind the figures that autonomy was sharing, yeah, it was down to... Um, a misrepresentation of revenue. And what, what Autonomy were doing was that they were a pure-play software company, but they had inflated their revenues by also selling the hardware that the software sits on 
you know, the servers, the storage units and massive data sources. And so autonomy looked like it was doing amazingly well, but actually a lot of the, the revenue was coming from recharged expenses, shown as revenue, yeah, in the accounts. And they were doing all sorts of deals with dealers, their channel partners, to get... Um, are you smiling because you've seen this? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. So the long and short of it is that that was the reason. And if we start to look at the impact that had on, on um, yeah, Deloitte's with the auditors. You can say, what were the auditors doing here? They paid £21 million fine yeah, uh, for audit misconduct. And this is what happened to the market value. So kind of this made me think that perhaps the way the finance profession evaluates what was a large element of the goodwill reflected in client relationships was not scientifically handled. Yeah. So this is, this is the nub of the scenario that, that we're talking about. Relationship capital are the structure and values. Relationship capitalization is then looking at how the impact of our customers have from a, a revenue and profit has on the balance sheet of the organizations that we're kind of selling to. So this had a, a, a material. Uh, do, do you want to share any more comments? Don't know, James? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Am I a record? No, I, you, no. I, I think I think you captured it there, Phil. To, to be honest with you, yeah. I think there was there was a technical aspect within the accounting which was a, a big issue, a big issue. the, the yeah. revenue. But I think in terms of uh, a kind of broader brand-based issue yeah. around yeah, how much value did their customers yeah. see in their technology? Yeah, uh, something that's less tangible, let's say. So there was a tangible aspect and an intangible pro issue. Yeah. Phil, I was just gonna. I'll make one observation there. So I'm, I'm not an accountant, right, just to put it on record. Uh, and I wasn't part of this deal also. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think as you, as you, as you look at this SaaS and as, as technology companies especially move yeah. towards more recurring revenue, right, I think the subjective assessment and the qualitative assessment has been taken out of the results, by Maybe. which I mean that I think the market is measuring a company's performance more on, you know, what's the remaining performance obligation over the next two, three years or something like yeah. that, right? Because that is held in contracts yes. that have been signed but have not yet been delivered. Yeah. So I think I'll be very interested in when you're... We're we'll probably covering that topic a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah it is, because it, it's a bit of a dark art. Uh, is it a dark art, Richard? Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously some people get around there. The yeah. But this is a, this is not a, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, okay. But, um, yeah, the finance director is in jail, and they're trying to extradite the MD over to America. Uh, Mr. Lynch, I think his name is. Anyway, so um, we have Richard here with us a bit later on talking. His father is David Haig, um, and what is interesting when you start to unravel the way in which you value intangible assets which are clients is this you know uh, just give you a chance to read that
Would you agree with your father? Yeah. <laughs> I've been told I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so David Haig um, and uh, Bram Finance, a company we've been working with actually for quite a number of years, particularly on how would you value the return on investment for winning very large deals? Yeah, and we look, so we've worked with them in the past in this capacity. So I've become quite interested in this whole area of customer capital and looking at um, the intangible assets. And Richard is going to share with you how it's done a bit later on from a finance point of view, so we can answer some of the questions you may be asking. And this is the isation bit of capital uh, relationship capitalization. So, um, and this is, um, this is, I think, new thinking. Um, and it's, it's uh, what we're suggesting might be a good way to go about valuing um, account relationships. You have a finance component which looks at current performance and future. It could be that you look at past trading. Yeah, you have a finance element. With our key accounts, what's our financial performance, our sales revenues, gross margins, and all of that sort of stuff, currently and future. And then, of course, you've got contracts. Yeah, What contracts do we have, current and future? And then we've got relationship capital, which we're breaking down into two parts, structure and values. Now, it could be, for those of you who don't know too much about finance, is that you don't really care about the finance bit, because that's for accountants, and it's only done when companies are sold, according to what we saw on the previous slide. My thinking behind this is if we know what is best practice about how you would value customer assets from a finance point of view, should that be the standard? <laughs> that we should work to. That's where I'm coming at it from. I can see you smiling. Can you? Totally agree. You totally agree. You know that's what it's going to be in this. Yeah. Surely that's, the value. Sure, surely that's what we should. The trouble is that the complexity of measuring, as I've been learning, is quite difficult to do when you, when you hand over the problem to auditors or accountants. But I, I think we should give it a go. I think we should try and do it. It, and that should be the standard on which we start to look at all of the ways in which we man measure, manage, and plan our key account relationships, irrespective of whether it's used by our finance department or not. But that should be the standard. So that's what I'm suggesting here as a new idea. Any, any comments before I move on? No? Okay. So how do we do it? Well, if we break down these areas into um, different types, contracts, financial, and relational, where can we go? And sales compared to finance, compared to marketing, from a systems perspective, is so far behind. It's only relatively recently that CRM and some of the data that we have to support sales has been available. You know, how many of us remember the Rolodex uh, systems for keeping track of contacts? And, you know, it's, we're really playing catch up very quickly here. So what is exciting, I think, right now with the technology that's available is that we can make the effort of getting some of the data 
effortless because it's already it's it is possible if you know what are the right questions to ask because if it takes too much effort you know contracts is easy finance is easy but this stuff that's not so easy to do because it's less tangible yeah but we can, we we can do it we can do it through um, clever technologies, which is why we're so excited about the relationship we have with IntraHive. And you can do it through surveys with customers. You can collect data to look at feelings and values. You, it's possible to do. And you can pull them all together into a dashboard that tells you exactly where you're sitting on the predictability of future performance for your key accounts. Why not? And this is what excites me, because I've, I've struggled in my career in sales to find a CRM system that really gives a huge amount of value. A lot of us have got Salesforce, but we don't extract the amount of value from the data. But there are now some very clever things that layer on top of Salesforce that can give us stuff that I think we can use in sales. Is that okay? Just, just, just where I'm kind of going. So I just wanted to share with you. So I thought, where do we start with this? So I'm starting with us. Consalia. So I just thought I'd share with you um, how we've started with our looking at our own accounts, starting to look at some of the um, kind of layers of, of data to see what it um, tells us. And I'm also going to draw upon research from Gartner about how many relationships do we need to have, you know, with B2B sales. You probably know the answer to that. Anyone quote? Six and a half, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what I started to do is draw upon data from Gartner from some other sources to actually say, well, if we're setting a standard for a key account, how many relationships do we need to have at which level? And we've started to look at things like um, mobilizers and decision makers, because sometimes it, when you start to look at um, uh, the mobilizer is the person that mobilizes all of the different decision makers to come together to make a decision. They may not be the decision maker themselves. Yeah. So for, for us, we've started to look at this whole area and it starts with the key account plan. Your key account plan starts to work out for your key accounts. Yeah. Who are the key people that you need to have those in-depth relationships with? Yeah. So that's something we should be doing as part of our key account planning process. And then we can start to measure how much contact do we have with those people from a structural point of view. And then we can measure using some sort of value survey data where they sit. So this is kind of looking at it at a fairly high level from a structural point of view. This tells us the relationships we have in terms of levels of seniority across different sectors. So we're able to see which sectors we are particularly strong in. This is at a fairly macro level. This is not looking at it from a, a micro level. And when we start to look at different departments that we kind of link up with, you can see, obviously, in sales is where we have you know, our key strengths. So this is fairly kind of uh, straightforward. But where, for us, it becomes really interesting and I don't know if I've got any names up here that are you in the audience, because this is actually looking at some of the data. What this is actually showing us, using some of the information we're able to get from 
um, the IntraHive solution, you may want to, can you just talk briefly about what it does and how it works, looking at structure, right? Yeah, so what you're seeing here is uh, on an individual level, so this is the Consalia as a whole relationship with this one individual, take Steve, what our software is doing uh, is looking at uh, communication data effectively. So it's looking at email and meeting uh, interaction data. And sitting behind that, we have an algorithm that, uh, that evaluates that, that, that communication. So based on the seniority, based on the type of communication, so uh, like a virtual meeting is, is more important and significant than an email. An in-person meeting is, is more for the relationship, the volume of communication, the reciprocity of it, is it one way or both ways, and about 20 other different elements within the algorithm to create a, a score. And this is showing that uh, obviously it's, it's, uh, the relationship with Steve on a consalia level is very strong. So what, what the system is doing is, is that that's an, uh, an aggregation of all of the people at consalia that have a relationship with Steve. So you can't see that here. If you were to click on Steve, you might see that there's four or five people. I think you've got them below. Yeah, okay, there they are. For Steve. Yeah. You'd see the people that contribute to that relationship. And that's in its simplest form. So there's obviously lots of other things you can do uh, with that data. So um, what becomes... Maybe Sorry? In order to... Just a quick question. Yeah. In order to see all those emails and meetings, does the people in Consalia have to consent to you mining the data, can you do it on the back end? Yeah, so this, the technical side of it is done at an exchange level, so outlet exchange level. So it's not on an individual desktop level, but there's, there's certain privacy elements to like the deployment. And one thing to make clear is that it's not looking at individual contents of email. It's just looking at the fact that there were two emails exchanged and there was a, a, a meeting invite that went out. So the fact, just the principle there were emails exchanged and emails nothing to do with the content uh, of what was discussed. So, yeah, individuals can opt out if they uh, choose not to be part of the system. Okay. So, um, what we then did was we then took some of our own uh, knowledge about what makes sense from a, a relational point of view. And every company will have a different set of criteria, but this is what we've done. So number of customers in the decision-making unit who we would call influencers and mobilizers. So of course, and then you've got, are you familiar with the term internal rate of return? Some of you will, some of you won't. So essentially it's looking at the risk element. The higher the percentage, the bigger the risk. Yep. So we're now looking at the risk component called, for example, if we only have one person that we're dealing with, one of our key accounts, that's high risk. Yeah, that's why we have a score of four. Yeah, in our case, this, this, this to us kind of makes sense. The number of our team that have relationships with the customer DMU, if it's only one of us dealing with the key account, yeah, that's high risk. Yeah, so it would have a very, very high score. Then this is what we can get now from, um, from the IntraHive data, which you can't get from a CRM system, per se, is you can look at the, this algorithm to tell you what level of communication is going on with those key accounts, yeah, with those people. And it's ranked high, medium, high, medium, medium, low. 
and we've given it a score. Yeah, if we have medium low, it's a five. If we don't know, it's uh, uh, that's another category. And then the relationship values capital. This is where the Consalia mindset survey. You, some of you are very familiar with. You know, we know that the four values of proactive creativity, authenticity, tactful audacity, and and client centricity. If you're living those values and customers love them, yeah, they see you living those values. We know that you'll be in the winner's circle, and therefore the feeling of how the key account manager is actually engaging with the account is incredibly strong. So if you're in the winner's circle in the 80% plus, we know from a relational point of view that you've got a very, very good score. And we can do that through surveys or we can do that with face-to-face -face meetings. It doesn't have to be a survey. Yeah. And then we've got here the cost of capital, which is part of a finance term to calculate the internal rate of return. So this is looking at risk. This is looking at predictability of are we covering the right people with the right frequency? And do we have the um, emotional attachment? Are they seeing us living the right values with the customer? And then when we apply this kind of ranking, we can then look at some of our top accounts, what we would call key accounts. And it gives us an IRR rate. Yep, SAP is one of our biggest accounts. It has a very low score. Yeah? We've got some accounts that, relative to others, are quite new. For example, we have UCAS in the room, quite a new account to us. So we don't have much relational history compared to some of our other accounts, which is why the score might be uh, an 11 as, a, as opposed to a 4. But we're able to use this, and the IRR rate is applied to the finance value of client relationships, which can then give us the um, capitalization value of those key accounts. So this is trying to put more science into the way we're beginning to look at relational value. Stop there. Questions? Stunned silence, please. Is the cost of capital cost of capital pretty irrelevant? Because it's going to be the same whichever client you have, I take it. Um, yes, I'm sure Richard will share um, uh, points of view on that. But it could be, yeah, could be irrelevant. But it would need to be taken into account, I think, with an, an MPV-type calculation. Yeah. But for us, it's really these first three... Uh, first two columns that we can influence as a key account manager. Yeah, the cost of capital, yeah, is less so. That's just, what is the cost of capital? <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Sorry, Stuart. Um, any of those results that shocked you? Were you surprised by any of those results? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if, it, if it's shocked me, but it's made me look at what can we do with each of these accounts to try and improve the score. Um, what has really been interesting, again, if we take Vodafone as an example, um, certain of our services, like our, our apprenticeship program, is the decision maker is the head of apprenticeships. Yeah, it's very difficult for us to get into more senior levels, but we found when we did the analysis through what we're able to do with IntraHive, that 
there was one person in our office had a relationship with someone that no one else knew. Yeah, when we looked into it on LinkedIn, was the managing director of one of their biggest divisions. And for some reason, two years ago, he was having a lot of contact with one of our team, who's not an account manager, <coughs> but involved in our business. So what this, this really surprised me, that we've been thinking of how do we get into Vodafone to have a more strategic level discussion. Yeah. Well, there has been some contact, and can we use that? And literally, we discovered this two days ago, so I haven't. So what's been really interesting when you start to peel under you know, the layers a bit is that we don't know what um, was communicating, but we know that she's had quite a lot of contact. And on the back of that, we can then um, either talk about what, you know, perhaps he wanted to do a master's. <laughs> yeah. You know, he might have wanted to go on the master's program. I don't, I don't know. But, or perhaps he was getting all his team to do it. But I'm pretty sure that he would be open to a conversation with us, given what happened here. So um, I would say that we're at the early stages of applying more of a scientific approach to key accounts. Um, this could be a KPI kind of scenario where you can look at each key account and set KPIs with what you'd like to do with some of the uh, data points. Sorry. Yeah, well, it's just interesting your perspective on the intersection between this and supplier management. Yeah. So some big customers are obviously quite sophisticated with respect to how they manage their suppliers. Yeah. They have formal structured yeah. governance with them. They measure their, the, the NPS for their internal stakeholders. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's kind of an it's back to back, isn't it, in, in a way? And it's interesting to sort of your perspectives on how those two things can come together because you can get very strong signals from a very big customer in terms of your strategic importance to them by the yeah. way that they they structure the relationship with with you as a big supplier. Yeah. And you know they're looking to measure similar metrics and KPIs, but on on the other side. So what? Sorry, what's your question? Well, they, I mean, uh, taking the supply side perspective yeah, of it, where it, they want to see the um, the value. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's obviously key. Of, of what they're. <laughs> yeah, I think that is an interesting question. I'm not sure I have an answer for that right now, but uh, no, it's an interesting yeah, area to explore. So I'm conscious of time, and I need to, I think, um, get to the end of my bit and then hand over to Richard, who is an accountant, and he can maybe talk to us more about the ization bit, and it's fascinating what Richard will share with us. So um, on that note, any other questions while we're getting... Oh, sorry, Katie. Yes, on that last slide. Yes. Gone, you had sort of quite an extreme range of between two... Yeah. Two Could you just ex exemplify now what you will do? As a consequence. As a consequence. So if, if high, you know, it's high good, and what would you do with low water? Like, what would you do as a consequence? Um, on the relational side, SAP were quite low. SAP were low, which is good. That's good. That's good. Okay, so let's say we're UCAS and we were 11. Yeah. Yes, you were 11. So what would you want to do with us now? Um, well, part of the structural relationship figure, you scored a nine, I think, on that, yes. is to do with history, because we've only got three months' history of working with you, or four months. And so the way it computes the relationship capital is, is looking at the volume. 
Yeah. I would say that we probably have quite a good relationship with the number of senior level people um, inside UCAS. I don't know how you feel about us at the moment, because I haven't asked you, <laughs> yeah, in that sense. So, so at the moment, I'd say as far as UCAS, we have a relationship going, we have ongoing projects, and I would say there's not too many red alerts. The, of those accounts that we've got there, the ones that would concern me most are the Amazon, Vodafone, Microsoft, where we're doing quite a lot of work with them, but we're very, we've got very limited uh, relationships at a more senior level. So I would say that if I was the account manager managing the UCAS relationship, I would expect to see that figure coming down in three months' time because the data would go that way. I would want to make sure that you are happy with the way that we're working together by asking you, and I'm going to ask you <laughs> um, about that. And so, um, you know, it's just being on the ball. It's just, you know, not being complacent. Um, and it's always trying to live the values that we believe are important, which are client-centricity, proactive. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, we've got a huge amount of insight, which we didn't have until we had the IntraHive data, I have to say. It's been amazing. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself.